morning, everybody. Uh, let me pray before we start. Father, we just sang together those words uh, where we ask you to give our jaded senses light, and uh, that's what we ask now, as we always do, that you would help us to, to hear, to see, to experience more fully the way that you have loved us in Jesus. So, Father, we pray that that would be true. Those words that we sang would be true for those of us here who sang them and thought about them and meant those words, and for those of us here who were just mouthing through those words and didn't even think about it. Father, meet us all in exactly the places where we are, inside of faith, outside of faith, near from you, far from you. Father, meet all of us and show us Jesus' love again. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, we have been uh, looking together over the last several weeks at the essentials of the Christian faith, and we've been using the Apostles' Creed as our guide for that. Um, we are now kind of in the heart of the Creed's teaching on Jesus. We've looked together uh, at I Believe in Jesus Christ, His Only Son, Our Lord, and this morning uh, we're going to take the next three affirmations of the Creed uh, together. We believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. So aside uh, from Jesus, there are only two other humans that are mentioned in the Creed, and they are here with us this morning, Mary and Pontius Pilate. Uh, of course, it seems pretty unsurprising that Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, is mentioned in the earliest creed of the church, but, but what about Pilate? Uh, Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea for about 10 years, and the only thing that anyone really knows him for, the only thing that he's really remembered for, besides minting some coins, uh, is putting up a man that he, think hadn't, that he thought hadn't done anything wrong for execution and doing it uh, because he thought that it would save his skin, that it would give him some political points. We heard his story in the gospel lesson. And that's Pilate. Pilate uh, was a simpering political hack, really, spineless and cowardly. <laughs> he kind of uh, breaks into our creed, unwelcome, you know, like a lumbering, muddy hippo in the living room. But... But millions and millions of Christians say his name in church every week. <laughs> we will say his name later in this service. We'll say it together. The Gospels, all four of them, take pains to mention Pilate in detail. So it's worth asking, why? How did this guy get in our creed? Well, here is at least one of the reasons why. It's because Pilate's name roots the life of Jesus into the flesh and blood of our history, of your history and my history. Pilate's name and Mary's name, for that matter, remind us that Jesus' life was not a fairy tale. It was not a far-off, spiritualized metaphor of some kind of transaction that happens apart from us. No, it's rooted in our own flesh and blood and history. Jesus really did have dealings with a weak-willed Roman procurator named Pontius Pilate who governed Judea from 26 to 36 A.D. They talked to each other. They looked at each other in the eye. We profess that to be true when we say the creed together. We also profess that Jesus was conceived 
and that a woman named Mary from a town called Nazareth carried him in her womb, which means that we confess that Jesus gestated, just like you and me. And I have to assume, just like others uh, yet unknown to us are doing right now, we profess that Jesus suffered. He, he bruised. He bled. He writhed in pain. His heart broke with fear and with sadness. That's why their names are in there, because Mary and even old Pilate, they are eloquent reminders of a truth that is absolutely essential to our faith. That is that Jesus was fully and completely human, just like you and me. These are the facts that we profess, that he was conceived, that he was born, that he suffered. These facts deeply root the story of our faith into the flesh and blood of our history. They draw us to this mysterious fact that Jesus is a human being, perfectly and completely human in as much in the same way, exactly the same way as he is perfectly and completely God. So theologians in the history of the church have called this the doctrine of the incarnation. The New Testament has another, maybe more pedestrian name for it. They call this good news. And so in order for us to meditate on why this is good, um, I want us to read from Hebrews 2. So I'll read Hebrews 2, uh, verses 10 through 18 for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in uh, your Bible, or you can just listen as I read from the end of Hebrews 2. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a faith, merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So the writer of Hebrews begins by saying something that I think is pretty heavy. Uh, I don't know if you caught it. I don't know if it stuck out to you. But let me read those first sentences again, and then we'll step back and talk about it. This is what the writer of Hebrews begins with. He says, it was fitting. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So this is what the writer does. He begins by saying, this is what was fitting for God to do. This is what was right 
for God to do. Now, I don't know how a sentence like that hits your ears, but I have to tell you that when I hear someone starting to talk about, you know, what's fitting or not fitting, (laughs) or right or not right for God to do, my ears perk up a little bit. This is not uncommon in our culture, not uncommon in our world. It's not unusual to hear somebody say, hey, I could never believe in a God who does that, or I could only worship a God who's like this. Right? Those, those are ways of saying that we have these thoughts about what's fitting for God to do or not do or to be or not be. Now, those kind of statements, um, that this or that that, whatever is said there, they, they normally tell us a lot about the person who's saying that thing, but not a whole lot about who God really is. The, the best way, of course, to know about who God is is to take him on his own terms, to see what he's done, to see what he said, and to reflect on it. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He is reflecting on what God has done. He is trying to show his readers, his hearers, how what God has done is fitting, how it's right. That's what this whole passage is about. So the writer says, It was fitting for God, who wanted to bring many daughters and many sons to glory, to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So when he calls Jesus the founder of salvation, he uses a word there, that actually has a lot more punch than just the word founder has for people like us. I mean, when we hear the word founder, we usually think of someone who started something, like a club or something. That is not what's being said here. The word that he uses gets translated a lot of different ways. It it's, uh, has lots of different connotations to it. Sometimes it gets translated as author and sometimes as champion or trailblazer or hero or guide or pioneer. And I think all of these words together begin to catch the idea that the author is trying to convey here. The the idea is not that Jesus started a movement. That is not it. It's much more profound than that. The idea is that Jesus is the one who goes out in front of his people to make a way for us to get where he is. That's the idea. Jesus goes out in front of his people and he makes it possible for us to get where he is. That's what pioneers do. That's what trailblazers do. They blaze trails. They make paths where there aren't already paths so that other people can come behind them and join them. Pioneers, trailblazers, guides, heroes, they go to places that we have not been before. And the writer names that place. He calls it glory. That's another word. (laughs) That's another word that has certain connotations to it. I mean, when we hear the word glory, we usually think of, of the shine or the glow or the luster that comes off of something that's beautiful. You know, like the sunset or something, like the moon was this morning. I don't know if you saw it, it was beautiful. But that is not, that's not what this means. Used here, glory is evoking a place. It is evoking a condition, a way of being. 
glory used here is to describe a world and a place and an existence where all of the relationships that we find ourselves in are exactly what they were created to be. We're rightly related to God and to one another and to the world around us. This word glory is being used to evoke a place, a location, a a presence, a condition where our work in this world is marked with flourishing and peace and goodness. It's used to evoke this condition, this place where injustice is finally gone and sin is finally gone and suffering is no more and death is no more. That's what glory is being used to evoke here. Sometimes scripture calls this heaven. Sometimes scripture calls this the new heavens and the new earth. Sometimes scripture calls this new creation. But whatever the word that's being used is, there is only one thing that makes this condition possible, that makes this existence, this place possible. And that is that that is where God is. It is his place. It is where he dwells in all of the beautiful and incredible weight of his being. And the promise that's being evoked here is that one day, those who follow Jesus by faith will be there too. We will be like him as we were created to be. We will be with him. Even though this, this catches our breath, even though it stretches, I think, our imaginations beyond what we're able to really get at, as the Apostle John says in his first letter, there is a day coming when we will see him as he is. The church calls this the beatific vision, the beautiful sight, glory. And of course, I don't need to tell you this, because we all know this in our bones, but we are not there yet. Again, as the Apostle John says in his first letter in chapter 3, he puts it, I think, beautifully, what we will be has not yet appeared. Everywhere we look, of course, we see that that's true. Instead of peace, we often see violence. Instead of good and flourishing, we often see chaos and destruction. Instead of relationships that are marked by continual self-giving, we see relationships that are marked by self-interest. Suffering is still here. Injustice, very much still here. Death, still here. An honest assessment of our world tells us with clarity that it is not yet as it should be. What it will be has not yet appeared. And if we're being honest, and I hope we can be, looking in the mirror tells us that's true too. All of that stuff that I can so easily indicate out there is also present in me, in my own flesh and blood. I am not yet as I should be. As St. Paul says in his letter to his friends in Rome, the whole creation groans and it longs to be redeemed. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan as we wait eagerly. So this is where we come back to the question. 
what is it fitting for God to do in this moment? What is right? What is it? What is the right thing for God to do in this moment? What's fitting for God to do with and for a people who have turned and walked away from him and taken his good world down with them? What, what's the right thing, the fitting thing for God to do in that moment? That's the question that's being asked here. That's the question that's being answered. Is God going to let his creation spiral into final destruction? Is he going to allow his image bearers, his daughters and sons, to spiral into increasing alienation and suffering? What is fitting for God to do? And church, the answer that comes back is like no answer we would have made up in a million years. The answer that comes back is beyond our wildest dreams. Because here's what God says. This is what is fitting for me to do. I will enter into that suffering. That's what's right. That's what's fitting. I will enter into it. I'm not just going to skim over the surface of the mess. I'm not just going to look down and sprinkle a bunch of holy advice and adages for people to find so that they can better themselves. I'm not going to give people a list of stuff that they have to do to save their skins because none of that would be fitting. It would not be right. Here's what's fitting. I will give up everything and gestate in the womb of a woman and be born beside animals, I will enter into the broken world exactly like my people enter into it. I will be one of them. I will enter into the seemingly endless stream of pain and sadness and alienation and suffering because that's what's fitting. I will suffer at the hands of my creation and ultimately be killed by them Conceived, born, suffered. That's what's fitting. Incarnation, church. Good news. Because this is the path that Jesus chooses to cut. This is the trail that he blazes through our suffering, through our pain, through our sadness, through our alienation, through all of the pollution that we have polluted his world with, both inside and out. And ultimately, he will cut through death itself and come out the other side. And church, he does this just for one reason. One reason. So that people like you and me can follow behind him in faith and make our way to where he is in glory with the Father. It's fitting because, as the writer says, if the children share in flesh and blood, then our older brother, he has to partake of the same thing. Made like us in every respect so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest for people like us in the service of God. To me, this is an amazing image. It's almost too much. Jesus has blazed this trail through the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. He has made his way back to the Father, but he has not arrived alone there. He has all of his sisters and brothers with him. 
those who have followed him there through repentance and faith. And he is there to plead our case. He has led us there. And when he gets there, this is what he says to the Father. I am not ashamed of them. I'm not ashamed of them. These are my sisters and these are my brothers. So I've told this story before uh, a couple times, I think, but I couldn't resist telling it again here um, because I think it, it fits. Uh, I used to drive this old uh, Toyota Tercel. And one afternoon I was out driving uh, and I came to the stoplight at Clybourne and Willow uh, over by the Goose Island Brewery. And as I was sitting there at the red light, I remember that there was something in my trunk that I wanted to get out of my trunk. Um, and I figured I had enough time to jump out of the car at the light and get that thing from the trunk before it turned, the light turned green again. I confess it was a, a cassette tape <laughs> that I wanted to pop into the tape deck. So that sets the time frame for this story. It was some music I guess I, I couldn't have lived a few more seconds without. So I reached down, I pulled the lever to pop the trunk, I jumped out of the car, went to the trunk, got the tape came back. The light was still red, so I thought I had accomplished my mission until I got back to the door. I pulled on the door handle and I realized in an instant that something had gone terribly wrong. The, the door was locked. <laughs> so there I was at, at Clybourne and Willow facing southeast with my car locked and running in the middle of the street. <laughs> and then the light turned green. <laughs> I'm sure I don't need to go into a ton of detail about how I felt in that moment. Physically, I thought that I was going to be sick. <laughs> and then the horns started blaring. <laughs> and the drivers behind me started to yell. And they did not yell encouraging things. They, they did not yell helpful things at all to me. So I did what any reasonable person would do. I just walked away from my car and I left it running in the middle of the street. I mean, I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> also, my phone was locked in the car and I needed to find a phone to call somebody and get some help. So I did. I finally went into the brewery. I found the phone there and I called a friend. Most of you know who he is. We'll call him for anonymity, Pastor B. Adamson. Um, he's away officiating a wedding so I can tell the story about him. I called him to get the number for a locksmith. He gave me the number for the locksmith. I hung up. I called the locksmith. And the locksmith said, it's going to take me a while to get there. Great. So I walked back out into this thick cloud of scorn and shame and anger to wait by my car. By now, you know how it is. The traffic is totally backed up. Because people would come up behind the car and then not realize there was no one in it, that it wasn't going to go anywhere, and then the light would turn green again, and it was awful. Lots of horns, lots of anger, lots of yelling with me just standing there. But then something completely unexpected happened. Dan drove up, and he parked his car, and he got out, and he just stood there beside me. He had come just to wait with me while I waited for the locksmith. 
I cannot begin to tell you how much that meant to me. I mean, there was no reason for him to do that other than just simple care for me. He knew how it was going to feel to wait out there by myself. And he had come just, I think, just to bear the burden with me, to draw out some of the shame from the situation. He didn't look down his nose at me. He didn't make fun of me. He just stood there with me. It was a great moment. He was not in the least bit ashamed to stand with me. And church, that experience, that deep sense of solidarity, that deep reality of solidarity without any hesitation, without any shame, is what happens when Jesus stands before the Father as our high priest and he pleads our case. He is not ashamed to call you family. He is not ashamed to call you sister. He is not ashamed to call you brother. He is not ashamed to call us family. And church, that is absolutely true. And you know that this, this thing doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because, you know, we, we're really great people who keep our noses clean and who've never done anything we'd be ashamed of in the beautiful, scandalous logic of the gospel. This thing happens precisely because that's not who we are. It happens because Jesus saw us where we were. He saw this situation that we were in. He knew that we would not get out of it by ourselves. And so he thought that it was fitting to come where we are so that he could blaze a trail out of there so that we could be where he is. Conceived, born, suffered, made like us in every respect. It was the only way to lead his sisters and brothers back, and it was his delight to do it. And this is what we affirm when we say the creed and we say about Jesus, he is not only the only son, he is not only our Lord, but that he was also conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. Church, he did it in love for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to, to see this and to hear this and to believe it. Uh, not, not as a theological affirmation, not as something that's floating around out there that we generally check off a list that we think is true, but to believe it in every part of who we are so that every part of who we are would be transformed and changed and renewed. Father, help us to believe for our own good and for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.